Hello and welcome to another magical Saturday stream. I am your host, Joe Magician, and today we'll be diving a lot into House of the Dragon, the upcoming Game of Thrones prequel show. I was trying to decide over the last few days about like, I don't know, what should the stream be about? What do I follow up Lara Strong with? And then the gods made the decision for me by dropping an absolute ton of news about the show and what's coming up in it, including the exact news that I in particular was waiting for. And that is, of course, how strong got cast. <laughs> we got to see all of them. All the actors were announced. We got Lionel. We got Laris. We got Harwin. No Alice Rivers yet, but waiting for that one. I mean, at some point, they'll probably do Simon Strong as well. But the three main ones, Harwin, Lionel and Laris got cast. Um, absolutely excited to see that. I know other people were waiting for like to see like Dark Sister and Blackfire and the Dragons. I'm just sitting there going like, where are the Strongs? Why haven't they showed up yet? Oh yeah, that was that was targeted right at me. We also filled out a lot more of the royal court with the, a lot of emphasis on the small council from these from these castings. But that's not the only big news that was out there. That would be enough for like a video or something like that. There was there was a bit more. A podcast done by House of the Dragon showrunner Ryan Condal with his friend David Mandel. We'll get into who they are in the podcast a little bit later. But they recently put on an episode with the one and only George R. R. Martin himself, where after talking for quite a while about collectibles and all that other kind of stuff, they actually started talking about House of the Dragon. And it ended up being sort of like a, hang on a second, whoops, ended up being sort of a pseudo interview about uh, George's backstory, him and Ryan Condal's relationship, and what stuff they can say about what's coming in House of the Dragon. And, you know, I figured this was a good time to catch up on all of this. I've sort of talked about it as we've been doing the different streams, as different castings have come up, but. I haven't talked explicitly about what's in the show so far, because honestly, a lot of it is fairly speculative and a lot of guessing and a lot of people trying to like look at set photos and try to figure out who's doing what and what they are and what they're filming. And I understand there's just a lot of people that find that speculation fun. It's not really me. I like to I like to go with the hard information and when stuff's like officially announced and stuff you don't have to guess at. I know that guessing game's fun. It's not for me. This is all that good, solid info. So I think this was a pretty good time to do like a whole House of the Dragon update, where they are, what they've been filming, who's been cast and what we can learn about it. But by the way, before we get going, like major spoilers here. I haven't been saying that with my recent ones and I probably should have. Um, <clears throat> gonna be talking about some of the characters. I'm going to mention what happens to them, not in real detail, but if you don't, if you don't want to know anything about what happened in Fire and Blood to a lot of these major characters or secondary characters, these are all secondary characters, basically like pump the brakes. This isn't going to just be like background, like basic background info about them. We're going to be talking about like where they're going to go in the story, where and how they die, that kind of stuff. So just fair warning on that one. And some promo stuff here. I recently put out chapter five i'm gonna go ahead and check my own patreon because i forget which one i just did i think it was chapter six i'm sorry uh, chapter six of dying of the light read through i put out about a week ago now chapter seven will be coming out by the end of the month so look out for that one uh, these ones are just me just me talking no guests for these ones uh, so you can find those on my patreon at patreon.com slash joe magician you get access to all of them along with any other patron only content I've done at the $5 and up level or the maester level. Also get access to like the patron slack. You get to get stuff early, get to see behind the scenes stuff, all the normal Patreon stuff. And when I put out videos, I know it's, I know it's been a while, but you get like shout outs and stuff like that, depending on your level. Also, I see some new folks or people that haven't been here for a while. Hey, Lady Char, been a while. 
Glad to see you. Real Red Wolf. First time catching you live. So excited. Love your content. Glad you could make it. These are these are a lot of fun. Didn't know about the podcasting, says Matthew Dominique. Yeah, it's a it's a podcast that's mostly focused on like uh, film memorabilia and like comic books and stuff like that, because Ryan Condal's a huge nerd. I mean, so am I. I mean, look at the stuff I've seen behind me. But he and David Mandel just do a podcast talking about all that other kind of stuff. (laughs) It's actually kind of funny. They just sort of invited George on as an emergency. He came like, all right, Sleeko Duck is here. Anders Graham has Nettles been cast, not officially. There have been people spotted on set, maybe who could be nettles, but no official word. I also want to say thank you to the uh, super chats that came in before we went live. Ten pounds from Ramona Zamfir. Thank you so much, Ramona. A five dollars from Carolina Blues, who's in the chat. Thanks for the update. You're very welcome. I'm glad to. I'm glad to learn some stuff about what's going on with House of the Dragon. I don't really do that kind of stuff, but I like knowing, like in general, what's going on. Oh yeah, I'm just terrible about pronouncing names. Sorry about that. One of my one of my flaws. One of my many flaws. I'm just terrible at names. Fifty dollars from Morally here and on the next week's stream, which I set up already. Actually, that's the thing. At the end of the stream, it's going to when it ends, it's gonna pop you up with next week's so that you can like hit a like or give yourself an alert or something like that when it goes live. But thank you so much, Mora, for $50, actually kind of 100 really just crushing it as always, Mora. Just a show of love and support for both of your channels. I'm enjoying the dying of the light on Patreon. Love you. You're the best. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh, and $10 from Here Be Dragons, aka Steven Stark. I'm looking forward to 17 distinct dragons especially psyched for Tessarion, give me that beautiful blue queen. So that's something that we were talking about in the Slack, that you couldn't really tell the difference between the dragons at the end of Game of Thrones. Like if you showed me Drogon versus Viserion versus Rhaegal, like maybe you could tell which one's Drogon because he was bigger, but they really, they didn't do much to differentiate each different dragon. It's We're assuming that based on the news that came out of the podcast about like how many there are that they're going to make an effort to this to uh, make them look different, especially that we saw from the what was it some they put out some artwork a while ago of like test drawings. Oh, and five dollars from San Rixi and empty. No thoughts. Only Caraxes. Yeah, there's going to Mallory's just going to be drawing dragons like crazy. This is going to be her favorite thing in House of the Dragon. Like screw the rest of the drama, screw the dance, the Civil War. She just wants her dragons. Yeah, but I think both of those are true. I think um, it's fair that they're probably going to make them have more personality than they did in the main series. Like, what's the difference between Rhaegal and Viserion in the show, other than the fact and how they died? Not much. They didn't have personalities. They were just kind of dragons, which is fair. I mean, but that's a, that's an aspect of the books that kind of got pushed to the wayside. Maylis for life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Make sure you um, like subscribe, hit the little bell button for notifications. As always, if we get the likes up to a certain level, I will put on some fancy hats. I got my, my little germ hat sitting behind me with the with the emerald turtle. And I got my Gandalf hat right there. We get to 150 likes. Uh, I'll throw on the germ hat for the rest of the stream. 200. We'll throw on the old Gandalf hat um just a little bit of fun just a little thing to hopefully get people to just slam the like button but hopefully you just enjoy the content anyway and you just want to help me out with making sure youtube recommends stuff is how which is the only reason i really care about it oh yeah so i already talked about dying in the light stuff that's on patreon uh, you can also check out my threadless shop at link is in the description you can get some ass waffle gear kind of like this i've got a sky blue blankets honestly really comfy shirts tank tops all that other sorts of stuff stickers whatever head on over to the threadless shop you want to pick that up i know make sure you check 
keep your eye on uh, Sanrixian's Threadless Shop. She has some cool stuff coming out. And actually recently did a one for Learned Hands, which looks really cool. The Tywin's Dead one. Um, pretty sure some of you in the chat already have it. But yeah, it's an awesome, awesome artwork there. I actually put out a theory this week, but not on YouTube because I did it really quickly. It was about Laris. Laris Strong. When I was going through the news about Laris's casting, it just kind of hit me that I was typing the names break bones and clubfoot i'm like something just clicked in my head and i was like wait a second what if laris doesn't have a club foot what if he has broken bones like break bones what if he what if his foot is broken and arwin did it i i posted it up on on reddit it was just a really short thing i just typed it up over the course of 20 minutes maybe it's something i'll turn into a video in the future it seems to be well received people seem to enjoy it it's it was largely me continuing to try and solve the mystery of like what why does laris join the greens well this would be uh, this would be a reason for it. if you guys want to go read that. If I turn this into a video, it'd obviously be a lot longer. I'd research it more. If this was just kind of like a fun thing behind the creative process, like where do these theories come from? Kind of nowhere. Sometimes they sort of hit you like a lightning bolt in the head and you're like, oh, I wonder if that's true. And then you write it up. It's like, yeah, maybe. Actually, it sounds kind of cool. Yeah, the ass waffle blanket is awesome. I would wear the tank tops, but I'm not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that on stream. I wear them when I like work out or when I um I'm working in the garden and stuff like that. So let's get down to business, I guess. <laughs> not really business. Go to I think we're gonna start here with the casting news first. We got a lot of casting stuff. There's been a lot of speculations for a while, people looking at set photos and trying to like triangulate Instagram likes and follows from different actors and stuff like that to try and figure out who's actually on the show, who's been cited, when they have been cited, what roles they're going to play. Like I know in particular, Graham McTavish, I think he's been speculated to be almost everybody on the show that hasn't been named yet. People just keep like throwing it out there because he fits a lot of different roles. We finally got which one it he truly is, but we also got, um, just going to run down the list real fast. We got Arwen Strong as Ryan Kaur. We got Jason and Tylen Lancer as Jefferson Hall. David Horovich as Grandmaster Melos. Bran McTavish finally got a real character, and he's uh, Sir Harold Westerling. Bill Patterson was cast as Lord Lyman Beesbury. Gavin Spokes was cast as Lord Lionel Strong. And then finally, the one that made uh, that made quite a splash, especially again for San for Sanrixian, uh, Larry Strong was cast as matthew needham we'll get to what's going on there so these are like i was saying these are largely secondary characters these are mostly small council members these will not be any of the any of the leads although a lot of them some of these will sh will stick around in the narrative for quite a while we're talking like mace tyrell level grand maester pycelle level like little finger varus these kind of characters we sort of stick around in the king's landing high council for quite a long time eventually they sort of feather out but it's particularly exciting for me or how strong that we finally got all three of these guys cast. And I actually think they're, I think they're pretty good castings based on what I saw. I went through before we did this, uh, before I went live and I was trying to find like clips of these guys and interviews and stuff like that. And I can, it's rare. I can watch somebody do an interview or watch somebody in like a clip from a movie and be like, Oh yeah, I can totally see why they picked him to do that. And actually a lot of these actors are um, theater actors. Most of them do not have a, a large body of a film or TV. Some of them, this will be like their breakout characters, where if they were in film and TV, they largely played secondary or background characters. They're going to be pushed forward into it's a quite a bit. But, you know, but for real, how strong get hype. <laughs> Can't wait for that one. So hang on a second. I prepared something for this. So watch the magic on screen. 
All right, here we go. There we go. I did it. We can look at pictures while I'm streaming. <laughs> uh, so the first one I'm going to start off here is with Ryan Core. He's going to be playing Harwin Strong, a.k.a. Breakbones. Description here from HBO is they said it says Harwin is said to be the strongest man in the Seven Kingdoms. So Harwin is the eldest son to mas- Master of Laws, Lionel Strong and heir to Harrenhal. I said, help me out. How strong green or black? Serious questions. Well, they're on both sides of the war. Arwen ended up being on the Blacks. Lionel would have been if he was alive when the war broke out. Laris ends up on the Greens. They, they split their loyalties. Alice Rivers ends up on the Greens, more or less. Do I have a video summarizing my love for How Strong? Well, there's a whole playlist I've done on most of the members of How Strong at this point. I did one on Luca Mord Lusty, Harwin Strong, Laris Strong, Alice Rivers, one on the fake Strong, Robert Strong. There'll be one about Lionel in the future. I'm probably the only content creator that is like narrowly picking out the strongs as something to talk about. So Rancor, he's an Australian actor. I looked up his IMDb stuff and he's done kind of a wide mix of roles. He sometimes does comedy, does drama, he even does action a little bit. He doesn't seem to be a particularly huge guy. There are some roles where it looked like he did bulk up for them, but other ones he looked not particularly huge and strongest man in the Seven Kingdoms. You have to assume that as part of taking this role that he's going to be hitting the gym for a lot of it. Notable role for American audiences you may have seen him in is from the Hacksaw Ridge. It's a World War II movie. He played the character Lieutenant Manville, who died by a grenade. Otherwise, you probably have not seen him before unless you're really big into Australian TV and movies. They sort of kept going with the Game of Thrones thing where they were not they're not casting huge names for these roles, especially the secondary ones. They're going to they're picking people out and this will be their breakout thing. Much the same for uh, Ryan Core. Ryan Core here. As you've probably noticed, oh, it's on this side. From the picture, Ryan is a fairly handsome dude. A lot of people's reaction to seeing Harwin <laughs> be cast was they sort of went like okay i get why rhaenyra did this i i, I will understand the thirst she has for uh harwin strong based on how uh, ryan core looks he's fairly handsome as i said he'll probably be bulking up quite a bit to play harwin you can probably <laughs> assume there'll be sex scenes probably some like shirtless flexing scenes there'll definitely be some of him at tourneys like melees and jousting and stuff like that to show off his strength uh, he's also if you ever hear him talk he has a very, very smooth speaking voice. He kind of sounds a bit like, what's his name? Chris Hemsworth. They're both Australian. They have sort of have a similar accent to them and a way of talking. And he just sort of comes off as a very charming guy, which should contrast fairly well playing, quote unquote, break bones, Harwin Strong, who's sort of a well-off bully who often inflicts serious injuries on those weaker than him because he can like this, the name break bones comes because he would go to tourneys and kind of like Gregor Kilgain, he would specifically try and hurt people. So the idea, I, I think this is sort of the character is more or less like a charming <laughs> Gregor Clegane, I guess. A similar level of enjoyment from using his physical strength to hurt other people. But I think the comp that's probably going to be played on the most, especially with the choice of this dude to play him, is that it's probably going to go more into the the idea of Jamie Lannister that he's going to be someone that's going to come on the screen and he's going to be portrayed as very handsome, very charming. And then as you get to know him, you're going to see that, oh, he probably has like a pretty dark side and he does some pretty morally questionable things, especially as a captain of the Gold Cloaks. I mean, the Gold Cloaks in King's Landing are known for being essentially not like police, but essentially just armed thugs that roam around the city beating up people. 
And that's kind of what Breakbones does. Yes, hot Gregor. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of thirst for Harwin Strong. And that's something that I remember from when people were first watching Game of Thrones and they would see just like pictures of Nikolai Coster Waldo and they'd look at him and be like, oh, well, he's the good guy. He must be. He looks like basically Prince Charming. And then as the story goes on, George essentially subverts that by making a very handsome, charming, smooth dude essentially a pretty big piece of shit that there's some empathy you grow for, but you see him do some pretty terrible things. And the, sh the same should be here for Harwin. That should essentially be the role here. And if you wanted to transpose Jamie and Cersei onto Harwin and Rhaenyra, that's probably that's going to be I think that's the intention of how the characters were written. And that's probably how Ryan will play Harwin, Even, although unlike <laughs> Jamie, Harwin dies pretty quick in the story. <laughs> He's staring into his eyes, feeling concerned about Hot Gregor. Yeah, this is going to be this is going to be a challenging one. He's going to be a pretty big piece of shit in the most likely within the narrative, but they're going to make him basically be a massive thirst trap for the audience. So get ready for that one. No one talks about how strong like this. Yeah, nobody does. I'm like their number one fan. I'm the only one that does this. I'm the only one that's really excited about Harwin Strong as a character. Let's see here. Another super chat from the Sanry. <laughs> team Hot Gregor and Team Hot and Team Brain Explosion. Yeah, get ready for Hot Gregor. That that's <laughs> thanks, Mallory. But yeah, th those are the comps I think for Harwin Strong. You should think of him as Jamie Lannister slash Gregor Gregor Clegane, somewhere in between those two characters. I mean, we're gonna see Harwin going around being a shithead gold cloak. We're also gonna see him be extremely charming, and he's gonna seduce Rhaenyra and. It's un I don't know if they're going to have him play him dumb or not. It's never noted that Harwin is is particularly smart and actually based on the way that it's noted that their father Lionel is smart and strong at the same time. And it seems like George essentially split them, that Laris got the brains and Harwin got the, the intelligence. So maybe he'll just be like a big, dumb idiot, but it's very likely they could play him somewhere like an evil Thor. Oh, your body's going to be ready for it. Yeah. Shitty cop archetype. Hot Gregor. <laughs> No, not a himbo. He wouldn't be a himbo because himbos are generally pure and good. He's I'm not sure what the name would be. Maybe like, like, a, like an evil kind of jock like character. But yeah. So we'll see more from Harwin as we see him. I don't know if he's been seen on set, but he'll definitely be interacting with Rhaenyra a lot. He's a major character on the side of the blacks. So I mean, this this Rhaenyra's sons will be looking like him a little bit. So but yeah, I don't think they could have chosen a better person that is probably going to be pretty handsome on screen and it's going to make a lot of a lot of viewers have like complicated feelings about as he starts doing shitty things dumb and stupid so next up we had let's see here jefferson hall he'll be playing both sir jason uh lord jason lannister and sir tylan lannister the description here is the lord of casterly rock and twin to sir tyland uh tylan lannister he also plays Highland Lannister, a crafty and calculating politician, twin to Lord Jason Lannister. So basically, if you don't know this from the Dance of the Dragons, there's Lord Jason and Sir Tyland, and they are identical twins. But Sir J Lord Jason was born first, and so he became the Lord of Cashley Rock, whereas Sir Tyland then essentially went to King's Landing to make a life for himself. And he ended up on, on a small council quite a bit. He essentially just tried to make a life for himself that way. But you may recognize Jefferson Hall already. He has already been in Game of Thrones. He in the first season, he played the ill-fitted Sir Hugh ill-fated Sir Hugh of the Vale, who was killed at the hands tourney by Gregor Clegane. He's the squire that essentially got the big thing in his neck and then he bled out and died. This was part of the John Aaron murder mystery plot. 
that essentially the essentially the idea was that his squire was somehow in on it and the evidence that he was in on it is that shortly after john aaron died sir hugh was then knighting himself but then killed very quickly and the suggestion is that his one part of his armor that guards his neck like his, i guess his gorget i guess think that's what it's called was not buckled correctly and that allowed gregor to essentially accidentally kill him in the in the jousting although it's gregor so i don't think he needs any help to try and kill people when i introduce him can you say if the greens or the blacks yeah sure both jason and thailand are on the side of the greens they were throughout the entire war both house lannister and the western lands basically is declared for the greens and Aegon the second but also this picture if you're a fan of the vikings tv show this is where this is from he played the character torstein he's one of the good friends and trusted member of ragnar lothbrook's clan tribe whatever he's one of the he's in terms of the narrative he's like below a character like floki but he's not quite up there with with ragnar and the rest of the main characters basically but he's there he tends to be kind of like a jory cassell like it was in a game in the first season of game of thrones not a big speaking part not a big narrative part but basically there and one of the faces in the background you actually would recognize as the series went on. But yeah, he, this is another character where this will probably be his breakout role. He's going to be playing two relatively important characters within House of the Dragon. And he's going to be doing double duty. He's going to be playing both of the identical twins, which is going to be a little interesting. Like, is this going to be, I don't know how they're going to do this. I think the thing that's going to save them is that Jason and Thailand were rarely in the same place at the same time. Jason would often be back at in Ashley Rock ruling the Westerlands, while Tyland would stay in King's Landing. As I said, Jason, the slightly older twin, he's the Lord of Cashley Rock. He does serve as Master of Coins for Aegon II when the war breaks out, but he largely stays back and rules Cashley Rock. Tyland, he obviously inherits nothing as the second son, being beat out by his brother by a few minutes. He ends up spending, yeah, he spends all of his time in King's Landing where he holds numerous jobs for the crown. He goes from Master of Ships to Master of Coin and eventually ending up as Hand of the King and actually a regent for Aegon III at the end of the after the war curious if they will have different hairstyles that would be a way to tell them apart maybe we'll have them dress differently like maybe they'll have jason that he'll always be in ranch lannister red and they'll have thailand wear more green or something like that to represent that he's on aegon's side or black and actually the weird thing is i think that aegon the second sigil was not green was it i think it was a gold dragon on a black field so maybe he'll wear those colors yeah aegon the second's actual sigil has no green in it so I mean, they're called the greens, but I don't think that's the colors they always wore. Doesn't he serve Aegon the Third blind? Is he the guy that I don't? I don't know if he's the blind character. Let me look this up. I don't know if that's if that's him. Oh yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, he got by the end of it. He gets blinded, gelded, and mutilated by the torturers. Good call. Yeah, he does end up a pretty mutilated character. So things are not going to be going great for Jefferson Hall as the series moves on. They both serve relatively important roles during the Dance of the Dragons. Obviously, Jason is the Lord of Cashley Rock in the Westerlands. He'll be at the head of armies. He'll be leading battles in the vanguards, that kind of thing. And Thailand will probably be the version of Jefferson Hall we see the most that he'll be more in King's Landing during the chaos of the war rather than actually going out into the field. Although he does end up in the dungeons for quite a long time. So um, unclear how much screen time he'll get, but definitely early on, we, sh we should be seeing a lot of Thailand at least until at least until uh, the chaos of King's Landing and when it gets sacked and he gets sacked again and then there's the riots. At that point, he largely disappears unless they have some reason to go into the, um, the dungeons to talk to him. 
I don't remember the two of them interacting, but you know, they could always just do, they could always just digitally insert or do camera tricks so that you don't notice. And one thing about Tylen is that he'll probably be playing a similar role to what we saw from Tyrion and Ty for, and it will be more or less a familiar thing. You can see he kind of has Lannister looks anyways. He's, I think he's a natural blonde. He's got the right facial structure for looking like he could be like related to Lena Headey or someone like that. He's being going to be very much more a council member, you know, somebody that's in on intrigues, more political arm of the narrative rather than like when we saw from Jamie where he was riding out into the field and he was leading armies and getting captured and stuff like that. He should stay relatively in King's Landing the whole time. So if you're a Lannister stan and you were hoping for, you want to make sure that you get that <laughs> the lockdown from Game of Thrones, that kind of character that ends up being there. Yeah, Jefferson Hall will be playing that as Tyland. I imagine we really won't see much of Jason, at least in the season one, depending on how far they get into the dance itself. Although Jason dies like a quarter of the way, a third of the way through the dance. Um, he dies at the Battle of the Red Fork, I think, something like that. But yeah, Jefferson and Tyland should be hanging around for quite a long time. Get used to him. He's going to he's gonna be in the narrative pretty much the entire way. And yeah, this is a very different role and a, a real step up for Jefferson Hall as an actor because... You know, Sir Hugh was a bit character. I think he was on screen for like five seconds. He dies very quickly and that's kind of it. Torstein is a tertiary character in Vikings. He's somebody you recognize. You get a sort of, you know, learn his name and that he's there a lot, but he's not really pushing any of the narratives himself. He ends up, I think the most you see from him is that he ends up being one of the, during the many battle sequences, he ends up being one of the POVs that they'll cut to during it to show him killing a bunch of people. That ends up being what he does. I'm the only content creator to showcase how strong, and I'm the only right one. Everyone else is wrong. They should all be focusing on the strongs. They're going to be super important to the House of the Dragon. Yeah, but that's, that's about it for Jefferson Hall and Tywin and Jason. I mean, he's a, he's, he's a handsome guy. I imagine they also be, will be thirsting after him. He'll be the primary member of House Lannister throughout the show. They really take a backseat during this. The High Towers largely play the role of the Lannisters from Game of Thrones. But yeah, get ready for that. That should be. Do we know how many seasons of House of the Dragon there will be yet? No, but there should be quite a few. They also set it up so that if they fit, it's called House of the Dragon. They didn't call it the Dance of the Dragons because it leaves it open for them to do other time frames. Like if they finish the Dance of the Dragons and let's say they want to go do the Sons of the Dragon with Magorns or if they want to do the conquest, it, would, it could all fit under that title sequence, basically. Yeah, he does look a little Viking, but he's supposed to be. This is from the Vikings TV show. There's other roles he's had where, where Jefferson looks much more Lannister-ish. So next up, we got, uh, here we go, David uh, Horovich. He's playing Grand Maester Melos. So the description from HBO is that he is the voice of reason and trusted advisor to King Viserys. I honestly uh, don't, know much about Horvath. I guess he would be on the side of he's on the side of the blacks, but he dies pretty quickly. You look through his IMDb, IMD, IMDb page. I don't recognize pretty much anything that he's been in. I've never heard of him. He has had a long career. He's been in TV movies and theater since around the 70s. I watched some interviews and he seems like a good pick for somebody that's trying to be a, a reasonable, reasonable person, a trusted advisor, somebody that's um, always putting forth caution. Although there is one fun thing, he actually has a YouTube channel and during uh, COVID, he started uploading himself reading sonnets, Shakespearean sonnets. So I'm going to put that in the description if you guys want to check it out afterwards. You, you can get a sense of how he talks, what he's like, you, you, very calming sort of figure. So understand why they made him Melos. Yeah, Mallory wants the conquest. A lot of people actually won the conquest 
I don't I don't know about that one. I think the problem with it is that Aegon's not that interesting of a character and that's what would be focused around. But yeah. Yeah, Aaron, I mean it's it's an easy way for them to expand the brand without having to launch a whole new show. Just House of the Dragon, Colin, Sons of the Dragon, or Jaharis and Alisane or whatever. You you could just keep it going and just I like they're doing it with the crown where they're just sort of jumping decades all at once. So Melos Grandmaster Melos, if you don't remember him from Fire and Blood, he tends to be sort of a moderating force in the small council during Viserys' reign. He's the guy that's always trying to smooth things over and trying to avoid the Targaryens from erupting in civil war that a lot of people saw were coming, especially after the Great Councils. He's also the guy who suggested that Laenor and Rhaenyra should marry, essentially a political marriage to ensure that Corlys and his massive wealth and fleet are bonded to Viserys and Rhaenyra in the, when she tries to take the throne. Even though, again, everybody knew that Lenor was was gay. <laughs> wow. Was gay and did not want to marry Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra didn't want to marry him either, but it was just a political thing. But Melos is one of the primary counselors who said it was a good idea anyway. We also know that within Viserys' court, he's the one that was telling Viserys to not kill Daemon Targaryen, the rogue prince, and instead to get him to give up his throne from the step zones and welcome him back in the court. Don't let this feud become a war, which it looked like it might with the way that Damon was trying to essentially become a king in his own right. And he was courting followers within Westeros. We know that on the other side of that Lionel Strong, who we'll get to later, is the one who was saying, you know what? Cut Damon's head off. Your brother's a shithead. He's the rogue prince. He's doing horrible things. He's a bad person. He's a wild card. Get rid of him. Melos is the other side of that. Oh, I'll see you later, Mary and Stephen. Guys ducking out together? What's going on here? Doris Dame says seem to be more comparable to John Aaron than Pycelle in terms of personality. Yeah, I was about to about to get to that. But yeah, he seems much Pycelle is a fairly I'm not sure what the right word is. I mean he's a toady for the Lannisters, and he seems to enjoy pushing conflict in a way that will help Tywin. Melos seems to be taking much more the idea of What's good for the realm rather than um, trying to push a personal vendetta or anything like that. Like he's at the same time, he's trying to he's trying to make sure Rhaenyra will be able to rule. And then he's trying to make sure that Damon's not going to challenge her. And also he's he would have stood up probably for Rhaenyra's rights. Uh, he's also the one that suggests it, it's it's kind of funny within Fire and Blood. If you guys if you haven't read the book, there's it's written by the fictional Maester Gildane. And he uses a bunch of different sources in order to try and pull together the different parts of history. And Melos is one of the characters who gets referenced quite a bit by Gildane along with uh, Mushroom. So it's from Melos, Grandmaster Melos, who wrote that he thought it was Viserys who had Harwin and Lionel Strong killed in Harrenhal in the fire. He's usually played as the conservative option, the reasonable option within the narrative. When Mushroom goes off and says insane things, Melos is the one that goes like, none of that happened. Like it was way more boring than this. Like they, everyone else is just making things up. So you're often led to the idea that Melos is right, but it's also probably true that he was covering certain things up. As you can tell from his character, he would not try to inflame things. He would rather smooth things over and everybody play nice rather than put out the sensational truth, I would say. Yeah. And he's not really scheming like Pycelle or John Aaron's a fine comparison. Maybe somebody like uh, Maester Lewin will probably play a lot like Lewin. Somebody that's just there to help. He's not, he doesn't really have a stated agenda. He's just doing his job more or less. Look for a Pycelle. That should be uh, Grand Maester Melos more or less. 
talks a lot about sex comparing it to eating fish. Is that a thing he did? That sounds like a thing a maester would write. So up next, we have Graham McTavish. Oops, wrong one. That's not Graham McTavish. Gary, for this picture, by the way, I downloaded. I thought it was the best one. Graham McTavish is the guy in the on the right <laughs> with the sword out. He'll be playing uh, Sir Harold Westerling. He's not Harold Westerling is not on the greens or the blacks. He dies before the dance actually starts. I don't really know which side he would have been on, but um, description here is Sir Harold has served in the Kingsguard since the days of King Jaehaerys. He is a paragon of chivalry and honor. I'm guessing he probably would have supported, but there, there's no way to know. He died before it happened. So as you can see from the picture, a Graham McTavish is, is an imposing Scotsman from Glasgow. Notably, he does a ton of voice work for animes and cartoons and video games. If you know who he is, it's probably from the fantasy drama Outlander. He plays Dougal and Buck McKenzie at different times because it's a time travel show. So uh, yeah, Graham owns his roles in both of those. He tends to, you could reasonably say he's like the most interesting man in the world from those Dosa Kisa commercials, except he's Scottish. Yeah. He also likes posting pictures on his Instagram of him just being absolutely shredded. So he's going to make a good King's Guard in that sense. You also may know him. You probably don't recognize him, but he was also in the Hobbit movies. He played the uh, dwarf Wallen, the bald guy with the axes that went around trying to kill everybody. That was Graham McTavish. He also played a character called the Saint of Killers. Saint of Killers, I think it is, in the AMC series Preacher. You know, Graham's uh, kind of an older guy. He obviously keeps himself in incredible shape. Very, He tends to play a lot of warrior characters, but he can also play a wide variety of voices. So it's kind of tough to guess how he's going to be with Sir Harold Westerling. He's supposed to be from the Westerlands. And although he is Scottish, I mean, he's from Glasgow. If you listen to interviews of him using his normal speaking voice, he doesn't actually sound very Scottish. He sounds more English. No, he does not have a heavy Scots accent or anything like that. But he probably can put one if he wants to. Maybe he'll try and talk like Barristan. Maybe he'll take on kind of a snooty thing, being a Westerling or something like that. It's hard to say. But one thing for sure, he's going to be playing, yeah, a, a very tough guy in the narrative. So Sir Harold is, Sir Harold Westerling, despite being Lord Commander of the Kingsguard for Viserys, is a relatively minor character in Fire and Blood. Uh, I'm going to guess, though, that he's going to get a lot more screen time in House of the Dragon. So the reason for that is, well, after he dies, Sir Kristen Cole becomes Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, and then we get the whole Green Council, and Kristen goes crazy, becomes the, the Kingmaker, that kind of thing. One thing that they might play on in the show, a minor detail from Fire and Blood, is that his relative, I think his niece, Johanna Westerling, marries Lord Jason Lannister. So if you're looking at the dynamics of how the small council may start out at the beginning of the show, there may be sort of an alliance of sorts between Sir Harold and um, Sir Tyland that essentially that their their houses are related by marriage. So they're both Western. They're both Westermen as well. Sir Harold would have grown up serving the Lannister. So basically there should be a level of kinship between them on the in the factioning within Viserys's court. But again, back to the point that I think that they're going to expand Sir Harold quite a bit is that you don't cast, you know, <laughs> you don't cast Graham McTavish with the idea that he's just going to be a guy standing on the sidelines of your TV show. He's somebody that tends to be a very powerful presence on screen. He's somebody that is a great speaking actor. He can do a lot of voices. You know, he tends to be an imposing figure. So I think, in terms of like, if you were just going to have 
Harold Westerling be somebody that shows up and then dies quickly and goes off the screen and that's kind of it, then you don't need to go after somebody like Graham. It's it's kind of a waste. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of probably, honestly, Graham McTavish's time to take a role where he's going to be in one episode and die. So when we're looking at a show that's probably going to be featuring, well, we know it's going to be featuring flashbacks of a young Rhaenyra and young Allison and Viserys as well. I think we're going to see that Sir Harold's going to get a much larger role than he gets in Fire and Blood. I mean, he's basically just like a name character in Fire and Blood, and then he disappears because Kristen Cole is the more interesting Lord Commander. So yeah, I would expect to see Sir Harold Western get a much bigger role. Although, yeah, he does die pretty quickly. He dies before the dance. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to make use of him. Like, seriously, why hire Grand McTavish for a role if you're not if nothing's going to happen? That seems that seems insane to me. Uh, you don't cast Scots to rule the Westerlands. Well, that's the thing about about McTavish. Like I said, he doesn't sound Scottish and he can put on a lot of different voices from his voice acting. So he can play basically whatever he wants. Quite a few of these characters are actually like Ryan Kors, Australian. Graham McTavish is Scots, is a Scotsman. I forget who else. There's somebody else here. Somebody else is Scottish as well, but it's just not going to show up. So next up we have, hang on a second, getting the buff guy off the screen. This is a Bill Patterson. He'll be Bill Patterson that way. He'll be playing Sir Lyman Beesbury. So the description here is the Lord of Honey Holt and Master of Coin on King Viserys' small council. I don't know much about Bill Patterson either. He's his most famous characters are more recent ones and he plays sort of charming older guys basically like sort of dads or granddads characters his most recent and famous role is that if you watch the tv sh series uh fleabag he plays the main character's dad so in that role he tends to play a bit of a pushover um somebody who doesn't have much of a spine but you know sort of just a pleasant dad character so that should that's pretty well with what we should expect from Lyman Beesbury. Oh, Bill Patterson's also Scotch. That's the one I was thinking of. And yeah, like I said, Lyman Beesbury, he tends to fall into that role a bit. He was the master of coin energy Harry's. And he, I think by the time he dies in fire and blood, he's 80 years old. He essentially just was master of coin for decades. He was good at the job and he's a likable character and he's relatively non-threatening. So Jaharis just kept him on throughout most of his reign. And then after he died, Vasari said, why change it? Lyman Beesbury is a, a good dude. So as I said, a lot of these are small council related. So if you're looking at how it's going to shape up, you're going to have Sir Tyland on there probably as master of ships. You're going to have Lyman Beesbury as master of corn. You're going to have Harold Westerling as the Lord Commander who normally sits on the small council. Grandmaster Mellos obviously would be on the small, small council as well. And he he's a little bit like Melos in that he tends to be sort of a moderating force. He's just kind of there, though. He, he doesn't really do a lot. He's the one that gets thrown out the window. Well, kind of, maybe. So we don't know much about Lyman Beesbury other than the fact that, that he's just kind of like a permanent fixture in court of the small council. His big moment in the story is obviously during the Green Council following Viserys' death. Lyman is the one that speaks out against the Hightower coup that's underway and that he essentially says, Rhaenyra is the queen. You guys are committing treason. I'm out of here. And there's two stories on what happens to him. Neither one are nice. The first one is that Christian Cole, after Lyman speaks, just walks up, takes a dagger and slits Lyman's throat, killing him on the spot. Uh, the other story, the one that Mushroom tells, is that Kristen grabbed Lyman, walked him out to the one of the windows and threw him out of it into the spiked moat around uh, Mager's Holdfast. 
and yeah, threw him down onto the spikes, impaling him, letting leaving him to die slowly from his wound. That happens quite a lot, honestly, in Fire and Blood. People get thrown out into the spikes on uh, outside Megar's Holdfast. Either way, Lyman is not long for this world, but that's that's basically his big moment. He should he'll be on the small council. He'll be advising Viserys, and as the war kicks off, he uh, shuffles off pretty quickly in a gruesome fact in a gruesome way. And you know, whichever one actually happened. Lyman Beesbury is the first blood spilled during the Dance of the Dragons. The war kicks off with his death, basically. You know, it serves an important role in the narrative that it demonstrates the seriousness of what's going on from Leighton Hightower and Kristen Cole and Allison, that those that oppose them are essentially going to get killed in a palace coup. I speculated on the Larry Strong stream that Lyman Beesbury's death may have served to essentially secure the loyalty of some some members of small council who are probably like, well, I mean, I don't think Rhaenyra is going to kill us. I mean, she's just going to be queen. It's like at that point, it's let the threat is less from Rhaenyra directly. And it's actually f- coming from Kristen. They use Lyman Beesbury to essentially enforce their will on the rest of the council and those within the Red Keep. So Lyman is definitely he's he supports Rhaenyra. He's he would be on the blacks. But again, he died pretty quickly. So he never really got a chance to do much. This will be a season one casualty, but should be like a fan favorite sort of character. You're not used to liking characters on the small council, but you'll probably like Lyman Beesbury, especially if you if you think the greens are shitheads. Yeah, fuck Kristen Cole. That's right. <laughs> Apparently there are Kristen Cole stands. I don't know why. Oh, I pronounced it wrong. It happens a lot. I'm bad at pronouncing things. That the Oh, good question here. What if fans want more House of the Dragon or Winds of Winter? I would rather have Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring than the show we can have both hopefully there's actually a question from twitter from a uh, user kate monster well more of a comment she said bill patterson has the warmest nicest grandpa energy so of course he's playing beesbury the demonstrated how come my favorite actors are playing characters who die early why am i <laughs> so excited for the show i don't know about him i think that's a fair point like i think lyman beesbury's death is going to be a pretty hard one to swallow it's going to be it's not going to feel like justice. It's just going to feel like murder from a likable character. Sort of like Ned Stark's death, sort of like the death of his men outside of Littlefinger's brothel, that kind of thing. It's going to feel pointless. It's going to feel cruel and it's going to make you hate the greens. But that's that's kind of the thing. It's his death is meant to essentially get you to <laughs> go like, wow, Kristen and Allison and no, it's not Leighton. It's Otto Hightower. I got that wrong. It's Otto Hightower. You know, that what they're doing is wrong that <laughs> what they're doing is just a blatant power grab and they're being shitheads about it of course by the end of the dance everybody's being shitheads but this is like the start of it and lyman beesbury ends up being an extremely mor- morally reprehensible act that starts off the dance Let's see here so next up we have gavin spokes is being cast as lord lionel strong the description from the HBO's website is he's the master of laws the king of viserys and lord of harrenhal as the narrative goes on Otto Hightower gets fired from the job and Lionel is elevated from Master of Laws to Hand of the King. If you're looking at uh, Gavin Spokes here, it's he seems very different from the guy that's going to be playing his son, Ryan Kaur, his son. That's going to be Harwin. You can see here that Lionel is a larger guy. He's kind of got a, a big head. He's balding. And I would say he's nowhere near as attractive as Ryan Kaur. He sort of seems like the kind of character you would cast as like a manager or a government civil servant. Kind of seems to be what his general vibe is. It, this is by far his 
biggest role in any film. He's done a lot of theater, though, like I was saying, and especially musical theater. He played, and I got the picture here. He played King George. There it is. He played King George in the London version of Hamilton. Uh, which is, might be what actually got him this role. He's mostly a theater actor. Comedies and musicals seem to be his thing. You can go on YouTube and you can look it up. If you search for Gavin Spokes, you'll see him actually singing the role of King George in Hamilton. He does a really good job at it. And he just kind of exudes that sort of entrenched nobility sort of thing. The kind of guy that like runs the government and not the guy that's sort of goofing off, that he takes his job seriously. I think that's what you're supposed to get from the cast. And it seems to be kind of spot on. In his youth, what we know, Lionel Strong was known for his abilities in the melee and jousting. He was known as a fierce battler and quite strong like his son, Harwin. But over the years, that has kind of gone away. He decided to go to the Citadel and forged half a chain before he inherited uh, Harrenhal. Honestly, not a bad character to think of would be um, Marwan the Mage. Seems to be sort of similar kind of guys. You're okay not singing? He's a good singer. He's got a great voice. Yeah, we're going to stick up with King George here. <laughs> he inherits Harrenhal. And at that point, Lionel gives up on the whole trying to be a maester thing. Although he does have, I think he has six links in his chain by that point. Most of them in law and, uh, and more. <laughs> I, I guess he was trying to be like a Western OC lawyer. He would be welcome on the Learning Hands podcast. Much more serious than Mace. But actually, that's not a bad thing to think about him. Notably, Lionel Strong is somebody that in the narrative is often underestimated by those who interact with him due to his larger size and the fact that he tends to talk priest makes people think of him sort of like a lumbering oaf some like a bored bureaucrat when he's actually one of the sharpest minds in the realm he's and he makes for a great hand of the king an excellent master of laws when you're looking at Viserys's small council Lionel is one of them that would have been a driving force behind it and again when he became hand of the king a Dexus, I don't know how the blacks will look heroic after the blood and cheese scene they won't that's like I'm in Beesbury is the the way the one where you go like, wow, the green sucked blood and cheese is where you go. Wow, the black suck. Well, especially Damon, Damon and my are really behind that. It's not the whole faction, but they tend to absorb it because that's how wars work. Yeah, Aaron's right. By the end of the dance, nobody's looking heroic. Everybody just kind of sucks by the end. That's the dance of the dragons. There's no clear good guys or bad guys. The war just kind of drags them down into horribleness and terrible, terrible actions against each other. And, you know, Lionel, um, Lionel Strong is a fairly fearsome person. He's excelled in his job as master of laws for Viserys and later handed the king. And he managed to do quite well for himself in his life. And he tr also tried very hard to get his sons to advance the family name, to make the Strong's power within Westeros that would uh, survive his eventual death, kind of like Coralise Valarion. Uh, you know, he sends his son Arwen to be a captain of the Gold Cloaks. He sends Laros to be a confessor. And he's trying to give his sons more than just courtly education, you know, how to play politics. He wants to make sure they know how to do things in particular, like not just be lordlings at court. He wants them to be like him. He wants them to have a trade. He wants them to be able to, you know, like literally do things other than just being a shithead that sits at balls like most of the lords honestly are. We also know that it's Lionel who lobbied initially for Rhaenyra to marry Harwin. Maybe Lionel encouraged Harwin when he found out about their affair and the fact that he was cuckolding uh, Laenor Valarion. You know, it ended up working out anyway. If things had gone differently, if there was no war, Lionel Strong would have effectively captured the Iron Throne with the blood of his son through uh, Rhaenyra. Which is something, it's like a constant plot within A Song of Ice and Fire that if there's a hand of a king, they're trying to marry their ch one of their children into the royal family. Lionel almost pulls, pulls it off officially and then pulls it off unofficially ends up being this is going to be a kind of character that you're going to be introduced to him 
and you're not going to think much of him. And then as the story goes on, you're going to see that he tends to sort of play the fool or that he tends to pretend to be slow and dumb when he's actually outthinking everyone around him. Mace Tyrell was brought up earlier. That's actually more of a book thing. In the books, Mace is actually a lot smarter than he is in the show. He's very oafish in Game of Thrones, whereas he's quite sharp within Song of Ice and Fire. Lena tend to play a double act where he plays the idiot and she plays the one you have to be careful around when it's quite clear that both of them are playing on more or less the same level. Love to hear the dragons sing about taxes. I oh, can't wait for that. That'd be great if it just returns into the musical. And I think if you're looking for what kind of character Lionel Strong might be played like in House of the Dragon, you could maybe think like Varys with Conleth Hill. Part of the reason is that Lionel is able to rise so high is that he doesn't actually wield that much personal power despite being the Lord of Harrenhal. You know, Lord of Harrenhal is not a, a lordship that gets you a lot of money. It's not a lordship that gets you a lot of levies or armies or anything like that. You're not really a power within the Riverlands. It's this, it's more or less like the booby prize of the Riverlands. Oh, look, you got named the Lord of Harrenhal. Can't wait for your line to be extinct within a generation. That's more or less how it goes. So that's one of the things that gets people to overlook him that can't, he can't bully people around using his power outside of King's Landing. It's a similar thing to how the Valarians, despite being the like the primary bannermen to the Targaryens for most of their history, that they never were rewarded with like lots of lordships and land, that essentially the Targaryens kept them as permanent servant levels. You know, they made them master of ships a lot, they made them grand admirals, but they didn't really reward them with the ability to challenge them on a actual like war level. And it's the same kind of thing with Lionel Strong and the Strongs in general. You're going to see throughout probably House of the Dragon that this is going to be a running theme, that the Strongs are essentially trying to make the jump from loyal servants to power within the realm. And Lionel's the driving force behind that. Oh yeah, did I forget somebody? I think, did I forget one character? There is one other casting, wasn't there? Like there's, I think I'm forgetting one. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, there, there is one other character cast, kind of a minor one. No big deal. Oh, wait, it's Sanry Bait. It's Matthew Needham got cast as Laris Strong, a.k.a. Laris the Clubfoot. I went ahead and tried to find the most said emo boy picture I could, and I think this is the good one. This one is, <laughs> this is a strange one for me. The description is, he's just called the, from HBO, they say, he's the younger son of Master of Laws, Lionel Strong. He's brought to court by his father. That is a big, big understatement for how much of a huge character Laris ends up being within the Dance of the Dragons. He ends up being one of the most influential characters. He has most of them. He has a large amount of mystery. I did a whole two hour stream two weeks ago talking about him. He's going to be a fascinating character start to finish. Yeah. And actually <laughs> in the chat. Oh, no, he's cute. Yeah, that's actually something that's really surprising about this, this casting. And it seems like it's aimed directly at uh, at Mallory. Matthew Needham really does have that dark emo boy good looks to him. You know, he's thin and spiny. He's got curly black hair, got kind of crazy eyes. You can imagine that he would make like a good Kylo Ren or Jon Snow kind of character. Yeah, and he's notably fairly handsome, which is a bit of a twist for Laris. If you guys read Fire and Blood, there are pictures of Laris within it, and he's nothing to write, write home about. But they went ahead and... <laughs> And decided to make him make him handsome. They decided to cast a handsome character to play play Larry Strong, and one in particular that seems to fit a particular demographic of thirsting. Um, 
Oh, super chat here from Kraken Queen. A 50 PLN. Thank you for the fabulous content. I can feel the hot D thirst in the chat growing stronger every minute. Hashtag hot D thirst. There's a lot of hot D thirst going around with these castings. It seems like maybe some of the thirsting that was expected for um, Damon has, essentially, has essentially been <laughs> absorbed by a lot of these casting roles, you know, from Graham McTavish, Matthew Needham, Ryan core. It seems like they essentially said, well, we're not uh, Matthew. Matt Smith is, is good looking, but he's not like the most handsome guy in the world. And we're like, okay, so let's just fill out the rest of the cast with like just straight up punks. And they went for it. <laughs> yeah. Timothy Chalamet is not a bad comp. He kind of looks like him. Sexy, sexy club foot. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody saw sexy club foot happening. Oh yeah. Thank, oh, sorry. Thank you for the super chat crack. Queen. Yeah. So much thirst going on here. The other thing is that Laris Strong is not a character that has any known romances in Fire and Blood or any lovers. He only gets betrothed very late into the story in a political marriage that never ever happens. He gets he gets his head cut off by Cregan Stark before it can happen with the Baratheons. So this is this is an unusual change. Although this could be kind of like maybe a Ramsey Bolton situation, where if you read a description within a Song of Ice and Fire directly, Ramsey Bolton is like grotesque he looks like an ogre he's got like these gigantic weird wormy lips he's like he's objectively pretty ugly and instead they went ahead and count and casted i'm gonna i'm gonna struggle to pronounce this one ewan rian was cast to play him who's a fairly handsome guy they also did a sort of a similar thing with brianna of tarth where they got gwendolyn christie to play her when brianna is a fairly homely character as described in the books so there's some sort of there's probably a tv adaptation here thing where they don't they want good looking actors basically in order to try and sell a show. But this one is, is really out of left field. But <laughs> y'all are laughing and I'm sobbing. I'm sorry, Mallory. They, they went right for you. They decided to put in hot Laris for you. There's no reason Clubfoot couldn't be hot. That's, I mean, that's fair. It's just, I don't, I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting them to pick someone like Matthew Needham to play him. Sure. They can. It just adds another dimension. Maybe just because it's a visual medium, they decided to do that. You know, he's going to be playing kind of the, what's the right word for it? Uh, a villainous crush sort of role in the show. The, the bad evil guy that the bad boy that makes hearts go a flutter. I also watched some interviews with him. These are actually kind of hard to find because he's not well known as an actor. He's mostly a theater guy, but he has a very deep silky voice he's also appears much younger than he actually is i think if you look at the pictures of him you probably guess he's somewhere in his mid to late 20s he's actually 37 years old so they're gonna be having him play a character much younger than he actually is yeah and as i said he's uh, largely a stage actor he does a lot of shakespeare he does a lot of dramatic roles this will be his biggest role by far and as the show goes on he'll be not a main character but he'll get a lot closer to it he's going to start off with a much smaller role and then it's going to expand over time especially as we get into the chaos around king's landing when it's revealed that laris is basically behind any everything so get used to matthew needham he's going to be there for a long time but looked like from somebody thought they found set pictures of him on there and he's more or less playing like a straight black mullet instead of his black curly hair like you see here so maybe they're going to tone down his handsomeness. Kind of like they actually had to do that Grendel and Christie. They had to try really hard to make her not look as beautiful as she is. And get ready for hot Laris and hot Gregor. Shit is happening. Oh yeah, so one thing that's really exciting about this for me is that this, this, this casting sequence of the Strongs in particular essentially just takes a haymaker and knocks out all the very silly people that have been trying to theorize about how or at least Valarion being cast as a, uh, a black man means that they'll be abandoning 
a strong plot. Well, there was, there was a few different possibilities people tried to put forward in order to try and headcanon their way around that. I mean, headcanon around the fact that they didn't actually understand like the point of the Strongs and how the bastardy worked between Harwin and Rhaenyra. So the first one that was often theorized is that because the Strongs were not announced in the first or second wave of castings, that they were just being cut from the show and the plot was being abandoned. Nope. All three of them are here. They're getting fairly high billing in terms of order of how they're being put into the show. Looks like the second possibility is that people thought that they, they would cast black actors to play the Strongs so they would add ambiguity that maybe it would be so the kids might be Lanors. And it's like, nope, they passed, they cast three, three very white guys. So that one's not happening. You know, there's no need to save the plot. I talked about this during a, a different live stream that the point of the plot is that everybody knew that Rainier's kids were Harwins and not Lanors. And it wasn't, it's not ambiguous. Everyone is supposed to know. They know before the first, before Jace was born, that they were Harwin's kids. I talked about this at length in the Harwin stream, but to reiterate, it's because Rhaenyra and Lenor spent zero time together and Rhaenyra was publicly carrying on with Harwin and Lenor is publicly carrying on with Joffrey, Joffrey Lonmouth. So as soon as Rhaenyra was what was announced to be pregnant, everyone just kind of went like, so that's Lenor's, that's Harwin's kid, isn't it? And then Jace was born and we're like, yeah, definitely, that's, that's Harwin's kid. So yeah, I'm glad that these castings essentially knocked out those very silly explanations and i hope people just stop using them because it's not it's not gonna happen they're gonna use the harwin rhaenyra plot and it's just not what you think it's not ambiguous so there we go <laughs> got that one out of the way what it's actually gonna be is it's gonna be closer to like gaslighting and it's gonna be closer to um viserys and rhaenyra using political power and the power of their dragons basically to get people to ignore the fact that the entire court knows that her three sons are Harwins and not Lanors, including Corley. That's going to be that's one of the sneaky things that actually pushed Damon and uh, Corley's together is that both of them were upset about the fact that it was quite clear that Lanor was not having any kids with Rhaenyra. Go Strongs. Can't wait to see how this plot plays out. The funny thing is the only characters in Fire and Blood that seem to be in the dark about who they're about who Jace, Luke, and Joffrey's dad is, is the three of them. Everyone else, this is kind of like, yeah, Lanor's not your dad. This is kind of a, a small thing. So let's go, go into, uh, sort of change gears a little bit. We're going to talk about a little bit of set photos and what they've been filming. There's a lot of set photos, people hiding in hills and wearing ghillie suits and using long range cameras like they did for Game of Thrones, trying to get uh, pictures of what's going on on the different uh, shooting sets largely within Cornwall in the the southwest of England. So we're seeing tons and tons of scenes of beaches and weird battles, a lot of action on the beaches for some reason. From what we've seen so far, it looks like half of House of the Dragon is going to be taking place on like the same three beaches with people walking around having conversations. So let's go through these. So this is Matt Smith playing Damon. This is in his formal wear, I guess. Somebody snapped these pictures. Giving a nice point to him. Way to go, Damon. <laughs> People are mad about the wigs. They're always mad about wigs. But it's cool to see like Damon's formal wear. You can see the how the the coat itself kind of looks like it has dragon scales on it. And then if you look really closely, you can see how it's outlined with I'm not sure what the right word is it, but there's a little bit of red going around it, kind of wrapped around it. A pretty nice little Targaryen thing. I think it's gonna be an awesome Damon. That one looks cool. This was a weird one. I mean, I picked this one because it has a dog in it and what a cute pooch. But they've been setting up what looks like a tourney pavilion somewhere. And the only the there are 
really two big turnings within Fire and Blood. There's the first one where with Kristen Cole, where he beats the shit out of Harwin, Harwin Strong, and I think he breaks like his is a clavicle or something like that. And then there the other one is when Rhaenyra gives her favor to Kristen Cole and Alicent is there, and that's like the the origin of the blacks versus the greens. That's when they didn't like each other at first. And there's been a lot of set photos of young Alicent and young Rhaenyra. So I'm guessing that's what we're going to see here. The origin of the the feud between the two young women. But I'm not really sure. I mean, there could be more tourneys and jousts than I remember. Maybe they're going to put a few more in, but those are the ones that come to mind. Arwen especially getting beat up by Kristen. That will be kind of interesting. But yes, House of the Doggo. More dogs. Always need more dogs. Uh, this here, we've got Lanar Valarian on the right with his white dreadlock wig, I think. And then actually the guy next to him is Joffrey Lawnmouth, his lover. This is what I was talking about, how Lanor is quite publicly gay within the story, and he takes several lovers. The first one is Joffrey Lonmouth, who actually I think Kristen Cole actually kills during or comes close to killing during one of the tourneys. But it's quite obvious that Harwin and Rhaenyra are the father, that Harwin's the father of Harwin, of Rhaenyra's kids, because while Rhaenyra and Harwin are off running, doing whatever they're doing, we can see here that Lanor is running off with his own lovers and gets caught and stuff like that so it's not it's not like renly where it's a little bit more secretive renly's relationship with loris tyrell is a bit more on the down low especially in the books lanor is very much not doing that <laughs> everyone knows that he and joffrey are an item especially when he marries rhaenyra let me see if i have like here this is this would probably be right after they're betrothed and they're sort of talking about it and like how their marriage is going to work uh, i'm guessing that's what the scene's supposed to be dressed up in their formal wear. Again, there's a lot of walking on the beach in House of the Dragon so far. Uh, young Rhaenyra on the right, young Lanor on the left. Um, unclear if they cast an older Lanor. Maybe not. Maybe he'll be dead by the time it starts. But there's definitely an idea that they're trying to make Rhaenyra look like somewhere between Daenerys and Cersei. I mean, those almost look like Lannister colors on uh, Rhaenyra right there. So I think that's within the narrative of Fire and Blood. You're supposed to see a lot of Cersei in, in Rhaenyra in particular, but... Clearly, they're also going up for a little bit of Daenerys here that you're supposed to be thinking of both of them. I know people don't like wigs. I don't care about wigs. Um, not, not a thing that rustles my jimmies, as it were. I'm sure it will look better in post-production. And I don't know. This is just one of those things that I don't get fired up about. I think the costumes look fine. I only really notice them when they're like particularly bad. And these look fine to me. Like they're clearing the basic level of there's a the movie with the movie Elizabeth with, I think, Kate Blanchett. As long as they're as good as those, I pretty much don't mind. Rayera hated the dress. I'm sure it's not really. I'm more interested in like what they're doing here. They're probably the conversation they're having and contrast it with the previous one with Lenor and Joffrey essentially in the bushes. This may be right after their engagement and essentially all four of them essentially trying to deal with the fact that none of them want this marriage to happen and it's being forced on them and how are they going to make this marriage work? And it turns out they just don't. Rhaenyra and Lenor do not make the marriage work. <laughs> they essentially pretend it doesn't exist and just sort of do their own thing. They act like they're not married. This one I highlighted because it looks like the Celtigars, how Celtigar and their pinchy crabs have made their way into the narrative. There's a lot of these where there looks to be a lot of war camps. I'm guessing this is during Damon's conquest of the stepstones so we should be seeing Damon crown himself at some point that does happen after he's been exiled he essentially with Corlys tries to take all the stepstones back from the pirates 
and the and the and the free cities from Essos using his dragon and fighting on the beaches and stuff like that. I'm guessing that's what's supposed to be. There's also we're seeing young carriages. I mean, uh, carriages with young Alicent. I'm assuming this has to do with the the tourney pictures that they're all on their way there. That's what these are for. This one was actually most interesting one to me because we get Rainies, the queen who never was on the far right. And then it looks like the two boys talking to her, those might be the strongs. Those might be Jace and Luke. I think Joffrey's the youngest. They certainly look like they could be strongs. They look enough like Ryan core that they could have been cast to be his kids. And she grabs. Yeah, I, I think this is pretty cool. Rainies is going to be one of the, um, Really cool characters in season one. It's going to be sad when she dies. Spoiler alert. It's going to be hugely tragic, but she's a fierce character. One of the best ones in the Dance of the Dragons and in Fire and Blood in general. If there was a fan fiction to be written about Fire and Blood and the Dance of the Dragons, I would have it so that Rhaenys survives much longer. She's an incredibly cool character. Every She's like who Damon wants to be, basically. Yeah, young looking nobles talking to Rhaenys. Maybe they're extras or something, but I could definitely... Oh. Whoops, daisies. Definitely look to me like those could be Luke, Jace, or Joffrey. Oh, hey, Top Shelf fandom. Good to have you here. Uh, Kate Blanchett and Queen Elizabeth I and the costumes. They were kind of ridiculous. Like some of them got over the top. That's my low bar. As long as they're clearing that, I don't really care about the costumes. A shame. I wish Rainings would stick around longer, but not everyone can. This is what I was talking about with the um, idea that they're filming a lot on beaches and there seems to be a lot of battles. These appear to be pirates from Essos. And then if you look at this scene right after it, there are guys looks like the aftermath of the battle um, that they've been tied to stakes, essentially to die in the surf or something like that. That seems like the sort of thing Damon would do, or they're his men being killed by the pirates because they appear to be so on the left hand side. So definitely, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of Damon's conquest of the step zones. And that may be why there's so many beach shots of what's going on. I think this one kind of <laughs> I actually really like this set photo because of the way that um, young Rhaenyra is looking like <laughs> this is like what their marriage actually was like. Lenor is looking off disinterested and she's looking at something else. Probably Harwin being like, mm, love that break bones. Here we get a Grand McTavish. He's as uh, in his armor as Harold Westerling. I think that's supposed to be who he is. Not sure what's going on with the bones behind them in the carriage. This could be something around the dragons. Otherwise, I don't really know why there would be so many animal bones in a carriage. And this is the thing that everyone went wild for last week. We had Matt Smith. We finally got to see Dark Sister. It looks like essentially this is a grieving moment for him. Something went very poorly and he's essentially just having a moment of like a bit of a breakdown in the surf or something like that. He plunges Dark Sister into the sand and essentially wades into the water and then but it could also just be Matt Smith being silly. I don't know how much of this would be something that's in the show. Maybe the stuff of kneeling in the water, but him laying on the sand. That just seems like Matt Smith. He's kind of a silly guy. Oh, it could be the dragon pit, Aaron. That's right. But yeah, so we're definitely going to be seeing Dark Sister and Blackfire during it. And this is Dark Sister itself. So all you got, all of you that have been the Valyrian Steel stands for so long, get ready for that. This appears to also be another battle thing people have looked at. And it looks like you have. Corlys, and then you have Damon, maybe Rhaenys. Uh, this is probably a war council at the at the breakout of the Dance of the Dragons. I think people have looked at the shorter characters. I don't know if you guys can see my mouse. No, you can't. If you look below Corlys, there's a line of what looks like pretty short people in in armor that may be Luke, Jace, and Joffrey. Even though they weren't allowed to take part, they definitely wanted to. That could be them. And that's really there have been a bunch of other things, but they mostly boil down to characters 
walking on beaches, talking to each other, some battle scenes and some sort of turning they're setting up. And that's sort of where they're at, which rather than like trying to figure out exactly what the plot is going to be, it seems like they're sticking pretty, um, they're sticking pretty hard to the, to the main story. And it also tells us that we're going to be getting quite a lot of flashbacks, most likely because the tourney is separate from Lenor's betrothal. So I'm guessing they're going to be cutting backwards in time quite a lot, especially if they're being giving Graham McTavish and Harold Westerling a much bigger part than it's in the book. So I think they're going to try and develop the animosity between the greens and the blacks a lot more than exists within Fire and Blood. Like in Fire and Blood, you're sort of just told they don't like each other from some parties and that there's a sort of factioning within the court and that's where it grows out from, but not really like the specific inciting actions. What do they really not like about each other? What made Allison and Rainier like hate each other and make that grow into a civil war? I'm guessing that's what we're supposed to get from this. And that season one probably won't get much beyond like maybe Rainey's death. That may be where season one ends, something like that. And so the other thing, okay, go back to this. Done with the pictures. I don't have any more for this. So the last thing I want to talk about is yeah, Dark Sister blowing air horns is the uh, podcast that came out. So the podcast itself is called The Stuff Dreams Are Made From. It's put on by showrunner of House of the Dragon, Ryan Condal, and David Mandel. If you've never heard of David Mandel, he's actually quite famous. He's a writer and producer, and he's done shows like Seinfeld, Veep, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And they're essentially just two, two guys essentially geeking out about collectibles. So movie props, comic books, toys, and stuff like that. It turns out these guys who run major TV shows are just collecting fiends. And that's basically the whole podcast. It's just collecting memorabilia from pop culture and that kind of stuff. Sort of like uh, Kevin Smith's TV show he did a few years ago about the um, that comic book shop that he put on with his friends. It's a little bit like that, but in, cop in podcast form. So episodes have them talking exclusively about different movie swords and which ones they own, which ones are the coolest. Other ones are like, Indiana Jones's hat. Another one is about some movie prop auctions that they were trying to buy stuff from. So it's honestly very much the podcast itself is not really focused on what they do for their day jobs. They do talk about it. It does come up. That's not really what it is. It's not Ryan Condal sitting down and essentially just gabbing about what they've been doing on House of the Dragon. It's a very different property. This episode, the one that made the news is a very, very special one, though because they brought on George R. R. Martin himself to talk. And it's mostly, the, the podcast itself, this episode is mostly about just like their different collectibles. Because if you haven't, if you don't know this about George, he keeps everything. He's done like house tours and stuff like that. If you look up on YouTube, you can check them out. He has all of his toys from when he was a little kid. He has a wide collection of like little metal miniature soldiers. He's got the, the robot from Lost in Space. Got one of the real ones. Just sitting in his house. He's got a huge collection of books and comic books and that kind of stuff. So they brought him on to talk about all that stuff. But since Ryan Condal is working on House of the Dragon and George is who he is, they started talking about it a little bit during the episode. So I got the description here on the podcast. This is what they published. They said, the stuff dreams are made of is back. And this time, David and Ryan brought a friend, George R. R. Martin. George talks about his life as an accumulator of many things like antique toy nights and prop goodies from Beauty and the Beast. The guys also talk comic books and Steve Ditko art, Bayonne pizza, George wanting to possess his own severed head. That one was actually pretty funny. Uh, and of course, House of the Dragon. No, they did not ask about the book. The severed head thing is that George is very disappointed that during Game of Thrones, he wanted a fake head of himself to be made and used as one of the heads on spikes. 
but the budget wasn't there to get it done. So they ended up buying just a box of used heads. And that's where the whole George Bush being beheaded in Game of Thrones story came from. <laughs> and George essentially bemoaned that he never got this done. And then Ryan Condal essentially just sort of just sort of speaks up and says, you know what, George, we can make that happen for you. We'll get a prosthetic head of you made. We'll use you. We'll use it as one of the beheaded heads within House of the Dragon. Then you can keep it. And George is like, awesome. Perfect. Where can you find out more about House Strong? There's a playlist of House Strong um, on my channel. I don't know if one of you guys could grab it um, and put it down there uh, for enough said. I think there's like five live streams just about the Strongs. I also put out the video a while ago talking about the relationship between the Strongs and the Starks. Amanda Crowfoot's daughter and I have also talked a lot about how Duncan the Tall is probably a Strong. That's uh, her theory that I basically have adopted and believe to be true. Really great insight from her on that one. So there are a few big things that came out of the podcast episode when George was talking to him. So the first one is that Dark Sister and Blackfire will be seen in House of the Dragon. I showed you already the picture of Dark Sister. Aegon II ends up having Blackfire, but the way it's presented in the podcast is pretty funny because George just kind of says it and then they make, and then him and David Mandel just sort of riff on it being like, oh my God, it's a massive spoiler. We're so sorry, Ryan. We didn't mean to do this. And you could tell Ryan's just sitting there stewing because clearly as being a, the showrunner of House of the Dragon, he has to be very careful about what sort of information he puts out there to not spoil things. But essentially they just tease him about this. And George essentially explains the joke after Ryan just sort of like mumbles something. He says like, what does it matter? If they read Fire and Blood, they know Dark Sister and Blackfire show up and he just starts laughing. So that's not really a spoiler. Like, of course, they're going to be in the narrative. They show up. Damon uses Dark Sister all the time and it features prominently in his battle over the God's eye with Aemon one eye. So that was going to happen. Aegon the second definitely has Blackfire throughout the war. So both of them will be there. I just thought it was funny hearing them tease Ryan Condal about it <laughs> where, yeah, they I imagine that he has to be very careful about what he says on this podcast to essentially um, to not give anything away. Although, as George said, there's not a lot to give away if you've read the books. That one made the news. I, it's not particularly big news. Another thing that came up is that Ryan essentially explained how big a fan of A Song of Ice and Fire he is. He's been a fan of the books going back 20 years at this point. He talks about how he read the books at first, read them over and over again. And then he bought the the audiobooks on CD and then had to essentially rip them from CD to put them on the podcast and how much he loved Roy Dotrice's narrative. And they talk about that for a bit. But they also go on to explain how they met, basically, that Ryan was a, a Song of Ice and Fire super fan and he was represented by the same agency as George. So when Ryan was in New Mexico shooting for a movie or TV series, I forget which one. He essentially got his agent to get him a dinner with George to buy him dinner and to try and meet him. And from there, their their friendship has essentially blossomed to the point that it actually seems like they really are friends. They talked about what they have in common. And it's actually quite a lot. They're both from uh, New Jersey. They're both New York Giants fans. They love collecting things like comic books and figurines and movie and TV props and stuff like that. They both got into the industry basically as screenwriters. So it's essentially like it almost seems like a protege and a, and a master relationship between them, like a teacher and protege, that kind of thing. You can sort of tell sometimes when people work with each other and they give interviews that they're not actually friends, that they're just their coworkers, basically. And it seems like there's actually quite a lot of affection between Ryan and George, which may not have been there so much for Dan and Dave and George. Uh, although one funny thing that came out of it is that when Game of Thrones was going on, Ryan Condal did try to get a job on Game of Thrones. He wanted to be a staff writer 
and his agent told him it was a no-go. They don't have any staff writers. They essentially just had Dan and Dave, and then they had Dave Hill and Brian Cogman who kind of just like checked the scripts, and that was kind of it. So that was that was Ryan Condal's big disappointment. He's essentially like one of us that found his way into the entertainment industry, which is pretty cool. Did he ask him who is John Snow's mother? I imagine Ryan would have been able to answer that one pretty easily. If he were like 10 years younger, he probably would have like a YouTube channel or a podcast talking about A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I think it does bode well for the quality of the series. One thing that they also brought up is that George helped Ryan quite a bit with the pitch and that he helped him with mapping out the first season. As if you go into the history of Game of Thrones and how it was produced, that's essentially what George did for Dan and Dave in the first couple of years. He was much more hands on and he was helping them write the scripts and he was helping them plot things out and what to cut, what not to cut, how to change things to make them better for the adaptation. And it seems like that's sort of what's going on here, that uh, George is helping out Ryan quite a bit or he did help him out quite a bit. And you can tell because one of the writers for House of the Dragon is uh, Ty Mikkel. Mikkel? Mikkel? Ty Mikkel? Mikkel? Who was one of George's assistants for a long time. So I think it's clear that one of the things that got House of Dragon off the ground was in particular that George likes Ryan and he's trying to make sure the project succeeds. Moralisa said they announced any actors playing any of the Starks. No Starks, no Cregan Stark. I don't, they wouldn't even be in the first season, I don't think. Starks don't show up until the, the war actually kicks off and then Jace Valarion goes up to Winterfell. So that might be early season two. I don't even know if that would be in season one. It's in the green to get from Christmas special. Oh, this is in the corner of my street or strong shields, aren't they? Yeah, I needed a background for this. And hang on a second, if I drop out the video, you can probably see it. This is a background Mallory made for me for one of my, for my house strong video. And I thought it was so good with the, the parchment and the, the way she made the corners that I just made it a permanent part of my stream thing. Uh, so the other big news, this is the, the other thing that I said was targeted directly at San Rixian. And that is the, they drop the nugget that there is going to be 17 dragons in the first season of House of the Dragon. So <laughs> some people made fun of this on Twitter. I thought it was actually pretty good. It is kind of like, yeah, it's a really random number. And if you're not super invested in the fandom, I can see why you wouldn't get why people would care that much. So I went ahead and I grabbed, I went through the wiki and I pulled out all of the names of all the dragons that are involved in the Dance of the Dragons. So <sighs> here we go. Arax, Cannibal, Carax. Oh, Caraxes. I pronounced, I did that wrong. Dreamfire, Grey Ghost, Melee's the Red Queen, Moondancer, Morgul, Morning, Sea Smoke, Sheepstealer, Shrikos, Silverwing, Vermax, Stormcloud, Sunfire, Saturn, Hyraxes, Vermithor, and Vagar. But there's only, that's 20 names. So I'm not sure which three they're going to cut out. The obvious ones would probably be Grey Ghost, Cannibal, and Sheepstealer, the wild dragons on Dragonstone. The whole Dragon Seeds plot doesn't show up for until midway through the war when they start losing their dragon riders and Rhaenyra and Daemon say like anybody who wants to try to ride a dragon give it a shot with the wild ones so I'm guessing if you had to take of those 20 which are the 17 I would cut out the wild dragons but it may they may cut out some of the baby ones like some of these were born and then died very quickly in the dragon pit or they only showed up at the very end of it um not really sure which way they're going to go, but that would be my guess. And the idea that they're actually going to put in 17 dragons. So there's not really a good reason to put them all in unless you're going to make them different from each other. I was talking about at the top, at the top of the stream how it's actually really hard if you watch Game of Thrones to tell the difference between Drogon, Viserion, and Rhaegal, 
with 17 dragons, they're going to have to put a lot more effort into actually coloring them right or just cover, coloring them differently because otherwise you're just going to get lost for the like visually for the viewer. You're going to have to be able to tell apart like, okay, so which dragon is this? Why does it matter? Who do they belong to? Especially if you see them without their riders. So this is something that should be really exciting for people that are just like 100% on board for seeing as many dragons on the screen as you can. You have to put in the effort to differentiate them and probably make them look more like the, um, the book versions than they did for the original series. Because otherwise, yeah, it's, it's just going to be lost in how are you going to tell them apart? Why would it even matter? It ends up being actually quite a big part of Fire and Blood and, and Dance of the Dragons being able to tell apart the different dragons and who's riding who. And especially because there are so many dragon battles that it's going to be lost visually on the viewer if they show a dragon flying across the sky and you can't even tell which one it is. Oh, another one from uh, Morally, $20. Thank you again, Mor. Super generous uh, for the dragons and Dark Sister. And Blackfire. Don't forget Blackfire. We're going to get to see the Sword of Kings in this one. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Valerie. They actually have to commit to variety and design. They have to do, they have to put in more effort this time. They have to. It's Otherwise, it's not going to work on the screen. So for people that like seeing the different dragons, this this is actually, that's why it's important news. I mean, not important, but that's why it's news. Fans of all 20 different dragons that show up in the Dance of the Dragons are going to be high-fiving each other the whole way down. There's also a little bit of tea dropped here. Essentially, <laughs> during the episode, it's implied that Ryan Condal is the only person that was putting forward a successor show for HBO that has read all the books. Massive tea dropping moment. That would be surprising to me if you tried to put together a Game of Thrones successor show and you haven't read them because that's where you're going to get it from, aren't you? Like maybe he's just, I don't know how either of them would know this. Maybe the, that would be something coming from like the executives, I would assume. Somebody's, somebody's telling some drama stuff out here, essentially saying that Connell's the only one <laughs> who's read all the books. That George has put out for Song of Ice and Fire. That's kind of funny, especially when you look at some of the names of them. Like, can you imagine if, like, what was the one, the Valyrian one? If you tried to make a Valyrian show and you haven't read like the World of Ice and Fire, that's where all the info comes from. Although it's probably not that surprising. A lot of adaptations are not super faithful to source material. That, I mean, it just makes sense. But a lot of things that are written in books just don't translate to a screen very well. So. It's not uncommon for that to happen, but I guess it would be, why wouldn't you just do this anyway to make sure that you like have a leg up on other shithead producers out there that are or potential showrunners that are trying to make a show? Interesting, interesting tea being dropped right there. Oh, another $20 from Morally. Thank you, Mora, uh, for how strong and Blackfire. There you go. Yeah, uh, Christina says, I want, can't wait to see Sunfire and Tessarian, Dreamfire. They all sound, a, a lot of the dragons in the Dance of the Dragons are going to be very, very different from what you remember from Game of Thrones. A lot of bright colors. I think Moondancer looks pretty ridiculous. Bailey's the Red Queen looks incredible. So does Caraxes. So it should be very, very, very different dragons. Like something more like World of Warcraft, like the way they have their dragon flights, think that. That should be closer to what it is. So the last thing that came out of this podcast that is relevant to like House of the Dragon and A Song of Ice and Fire in general, they didn't talk much. I don't think they talked at all about the Winds of Winter. And that is that George had previously pitched a Dunkin' Egg show, which HBO wasn't interested in at the time. They didn't talk about the Dunkin' Egg show that is currently supposedly in development at HBO. If you guys aren't aware, I did a stream about this a while back, talking about the difference, a potential 
spinoffs. They announced like six of them at once. Duncan Egg was actually Ryan Condal's first pitch. He wanted Duncan Egg and they turned him down for that. But afterwards, after he got House of the Dragon off the ground, they apparently went back and it's not really clear who's attached to it, what level of development's even in. It might even just be like like a folder, like a Google Doc somewhere where people have typed in Duncan Egg and like some basic stuff. But supposedly there will be a Duncan Egg series out there. The interesting thing is that this happened to House of the Dragon as well, that HBO has been pitched the same idea multiple times, turned it down initially, and then made the made it anyway. Like, for instance, if you don't know this, one of the initial pitches for a successor show came from a Game of Thrones writer, Brian Cogman. He pitched the Dance of the Dragons, essentially House of the Dragon, what we're seeing now. And whatever his pitch was, HBO passed on it. And then he went off and I think he got a job working on the Lord of the Rings show for a bit. I don't think he's doing that anymore. I forget what he's up to these days. Um, probably just doing some screenwriting or something like that. But after Cogman's pitch for the dance failed, now this is I, I made a video about this and I thought it was pretty funny at the time. Cogman pitches it. HBO says no. Fire and Blood is then released by George R. R. Martin. And then Pondle comes back with Fire and Blood, pitches it with the book in hand, and now it gets greenlit. So uh, presumably you can, I think there's some inference there that the reason that Ryan Condal is making House of the Dragon now has a lot to do with George's support and also his making the book so that it's not, so that a lot more of it is coming directly from source material and rather than him trying to essentially make up a whole story, you know, making up a story whole cloth. Because if you just read The Princess and the Queen and The Rogue Prince, you get a good amount of the dance, but George really expanded it in Fire and Blood. And he really, it almost reads like like an outline for a TV show, to be honest. So I thought that was pretty interesting, that um, trying to figure out the inner workings at HBO, how they're deciding which projects and which showrunners to push forward. And it may it may be that George is essentially playing a little kingmaker stuff with who he's who he's approving of, which projects he likes in terms of what's going forwards, especially because the news came out a little while ago that they re-upped his massive, massive contract for all this stuff. And that Ryan said during this podcast that George has been helping him quite a lot with getting House of the Dragons pitch like up and running as well as getting the show off the ground. If you're the kind of person that really didn't like the last few seasons of Game of Thrones because they weren't sticking to the books as much as you like and that you thought that Dan and Dave were going off script too much. Well, they George has essentially gone back the other way and he's handed essentially an outline of a TV show to Ryan Condal and Fire and Blood and that he's currently helping them. They're, they appear to be relatively good friends, more than just colleagues. And yeah, that that's something to be excited about if that was a problem you had with the last few seasons. Duncan Egg books should probably come back. Well, if it's an, the, the rumor about Duncan Egg is that it's going to be an animated show and animated shows take a lot longer to make than they do for um, and live action ones. Actually, a San Rixian uh, knows about that quite a bit in the chat. She's talking about how she is a 3D artist. She works on TV shows and yeah, it, it takes animated stuff take has a lot longer lead time than, than live action shows like some movies you can some movies are like are shot all the all the like the camera work is done in like four months and then they'll spend two to three years working on the cgi and 3d design to get it all done so if they're doing a duncan egg animated show or a or cartoon or something like that it's not going to be around for quite a long time so they have time to essentially focus on house of the dragon get it up and running see 
see if the audiences are showing up for it before they really have to get too serious about any of the other shows that they have planned. I don't think he regrets choosing Dan and Dave. I mean, they made him an absolute, they made him one of the wealthiest authors in the world. That show did incredible. It made, anyway, his book sales go through the roof. I mean, he's probably, he's not, he's made it clear that he's going to, it's not entirely his version. And that he's said before, actually that this anecdote came up during a podcast where he said that Dan and Dave wanted to end it early because in other instances, George has essentially said that he thought you could have gotten 12 seasons out of the books, which is probably a little ambitious. But that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he regrets hiring, working with Dan and Dave with HBO to make Game of Thrones. He probably would have done things differently if he was more involved the whole way through. But, you know, that's that's sort of sort of a problem that happened that he started to that one's a two way street because they essentially started the series thinking that George was going to finish the series, the book series, or at least get close to it before the book, before the show ended. And then that just didn't happen. So on one hand, you can be annoyed that Dan and Dave ended the ended the show earlier. But at the same time, Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring weren't there to adapt. So what are they supposed to do? There's a little bit of fault there to go around with everybody. You know, that's the nature of adaptations that not everything the the original writer or creator of a thing ends up on the screen. It happens all the time. Yeah, that's right, Mallory. So many people are involved with animated stuff. You can't imagine how much time and effort goes into every little part of an animated thing that you watch on the screen. So whatever they're doing for Dunkin' Egg will take forever. And actually... The same for House of the Dragon. This is the sort of the backside of the 17 dragons things. Those are going to take a long time and a lot of money to animate and make them look different. And um, like you can't also like <laughs> like Mortal Kombat where like Sub-Zero and Scorpion and Reptile are all just recolors of the same source images. You're not really going to be able to do that with with this. So there's going to be individual design done for each of the dragons to get their sizing right like behavioral stuff, all that sort of thing. Don't think I said everyone made that point. Yeah, I think that's really overlooked. It's like if you take a job adapting a series and you have four or five books and you're expecting to have seven so that you can faithfully put them on the screen, it's tough to do that when you don't have them, you know? So there's some, there's some blame to go all around with that with the end of Game of Thrones and people not liking where it went. But you can't just say Dan and Dave were essentially like, it's all their fault. They're the worst. It's like, well, you, they didn't have the source material because it wasn't published. So what are you supposed to do? Well, anyway, um, so if you want to go listen to the whole podcast thing with uh, George and Ryan Condal and David Mendel, Mandel, uh, I put the link in the description. I thought it was just like a good podcast in general. Ryan and David have a good rapport. It's really interesting hearing them passionate about a lot of the stuff. I don't actually know much about like collecting comic books and movie props and like how the economics of it works and like how you verify that something is real from a set. Also just hearing a lot of backstory from George about his young life, how much he really, really, really loves comic books. And that's probably if you're looking for like analysis of what's in Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, like comic books are probably really, really underexplored in terms of that because that was his passion as a kid. He loved comic books, but like what kind of collections he has, all that other kind of stuff. I thought it was, a sh- I think it's just a good listen on in general. I think it sounds like a pretty good podcast and it just has an added bonus that it happens to contain some news and some tea about House of the Dragon. It's all my fault. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I didn't, I didn't cheerlead enough for them. Oh, that's true. HBO, you should have given me more shill bucks. Then I would have sung your praises even more. 
You know what's crazy? Some people actually think that happens. Those people have lost their money. Yeah. <laughs> Dan and Dave made season eight and season seven. Yeah, but they also made seasons one, two, three, four, five, six. So they made the good parts and the bad parts if you think the last few seasons were bad parts. So hopefully that won't happen with House of the Dragon. It seems like him and Ryan have a pretty good relationship and he's basically given him an outline of what to do with the show from Fire and Blood. It's it's a complete narrative start to finish. So there's there's no waiting for anything. He just has they just have to ask him for details and that's basically it. Aaron, is that true? <laughs> You waited to be a patron of mine because you were salty. I didn't hate season eight. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah, I didn't hate season eight. I thought it was I did a video where I did like a wrap up of what I thought of the season of the finale itself and like season eight in general. And I was like, no, yeah, it's good. It's not great. It's not fantastic. I think I gave it like a seven or seven and a half out of ten or something like that, where it was like there were really good moments. There are some things that weren't that great. They move too quickly through some parts and they probably could have gotten like an extra episode or two out of it and then like filled in a few gaps but there were parts i really loved and you know it's not the best season of game of thrones not even by a long shot but it was pretty good i enjoyed watching it it could have been an eight out of ten though hbo if you just just give me the hbo shill bucks please don't take that seriously of course i'm joking again if you think that kind of thing happens you're out of your mind i was too kind no, it's not too kind. It's my opinion. Opinions vary from person to person. That's just how they work. So I think that's probably about it. We've gone a little bit over today. So I hope that was a, a good look at the casting for all of you guys, like who these characters are, what they probably will do in season one, maybe a little bit of info about the the actors themselves. Seriously, go watch David Horovich read his the sonnet. There's actually it was like almost asmr -y. looking forward to a lot of these actors i think they, it seems like they made good choices from what i could find yeah and go listen to that podcast with it's called the stuff dreams are made of with ryan condal and david mendel but the latest ones with george r, r. martin i thought it was just fascinating in its own right so i probably actually just gonna listen to more episodes of that podcast and see if it's something i enjoy in general with, without george coming on ryan and dan ryan and david were just interesting podcast hosts to begin with so yeah thanks everybody for stopping by thanks for the all the super chats from Maura Lee, San Rixian, Kraken Queen, Carolina Blues, Ramona Zamfir, Danny McKay. What do I have coming up? Oh yeah, by the end of the month, see episode, chapter seven of Dying of the Light will be coming out. I'll be recording that over the next few days. If you enjoyed this and had a good time watching the stream, you know, hit the like button, subscribe, hit the little bell button for notifications. And if you want to support me more, unless you're like Aaron, who is just upset at my season eight takes, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash magician where you can get access to um, content early, get access to patron only stuff like the dying of the light, read through um, and the patron slack and all that stuff. That's about it for me today. Oh, hey, Jinx. Jinx Lier making a like, entrance to the stream. How you doing? Oh yeah, I have a bunch of plants. I have five succulents, a peace lily. I forget what this, it's called, like a honey? No, this is a big plant. It's actually, I have to cut it again because it's trying to reach to the floor. I have a dragon tree over here. Plus my garden outside, I love garden. But yeah, thanks guys. I'll see you all next week. Let me make, hang on, is Radio Westeros streaming today? Radio Westeros. I don't know if they're streaming today. Yeah, Pothos, that's the name of it, a Pothos plant. Fun fact, you can just take one of these little nubs down here and you can just plant a new one. That's why they only cost a dollar. You can take a whole plant and it will grow from that. Let me check their Discord real fast. Oh yeah, Steven, yeah, that's right. Steven Stark, here be dragon, sent a super chat. Sorry, I missed that one. By the end of these streams, I get a little punchy and I don't think Rhea Westeros is streaming today. Yeah, I don't think so. So what can you check out next? 
Mystery of Restaurants is probably streaming tomorrow. And then I hear Dragons usually goes on after them. But yeah, check all that stuff out. I'll see you.